Henry alluded to, we are beginning a new series on the first Sunday of January on learning to live in a prophetic age. And we're going to be looking at a fairly wide topic, and we're going to try to focus it in for us a little bit over these next couple of Sundays on learning to live in a prophetic age. Who here has wondered at any point in your life if something happening could be the fulfilling of prophecy? Has anyone ever wondered that? I see some hands. Has anyone wondered that about things that have happened in the past, I don't know, year? I think especially in the past year, people are beginning to wonder, are the things we're seeing happening in the world somehow leading up to the fulfillment of biblical prophecies? And I think any student of scripture, anyone who's paying attention to things going on in the world, would have to say that if it's not the direct fulfillment of prophecy, it is most certainly leading up to or precipitating the fulfillment of prophecy. And so I think beginning the new year, it's a good time for us to look at this whole topic of prophecy and look at it through the lens of what's happening in the world today and be ready and prepared that when people who maybe aren't typically interested in something as exciting as biblical prophecy who, when they look at things happening in the world, say, hey, doesn't the Bible talk about that? And that we may be a little bit more prepared to give an answer on how God's plan is coming about. Because as we've been reminded this morning, God's plan is happening. And Joseph's life is a perfect example of that. How we, say, we see things going wrong in the world. We see things going badly. And so we, we think, well, is God actually working? Yes, my friends, he is working. His plan is coming together. And as believers, we are given the keys through the Bible to learn to understand exactly what he's doing. And so I want to give you a little bit of equipping this morning, hopefully, on how we can go about doing that. So would you bow with me once more? Father in heaven, as we look at what's going on in the world, it's so easy for us to see what's going wrong. We see evil everywhere, everywhere we look. We see suffering in so many places. We see the innocent being preyed upon, taken advantage of. Lord, we see so many things that just aren't right. And above it all, we see willful rebellion against you. And so, Father, all of these things we know trouble your heart as they trouble us. You don't want these things to be happening any more than we do, and yet you have given us free will to choose you or to choose against you. And so, Father, as we see those choosing against you, this is no surprise. And even more, Lord, as we look at your word and we look at the events in the world, we understand that some of these things must come to pass before the end, and that your word has given us clues and insights to see the things, the signs of what will take place before your return. And so, Lord, we know that your return is drawing ever closer with each day. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be people who, as you told us, would be alert, would be prepared, and would understand the signs of the time. So I pray that this morning you would speak through your word, speak through me, your servant, and may this be a time of equipping for all of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story of an old Native American chief who became famous for accurately predicting the weather. So people would inevitably go to the chief and ask him, what will the weather be like tomorrow? And the chief would reply, 
much rain, very wet. Sure enough, the next day it would rain and be very wet. So others from the tribe would go to the chief and ask, well, what will the weather be like tomorrow? Much snow, very cold, he would reply. And sure enough, the next day it would snow and be very cold. On another such occasion, again, someone asked, Chief, what will the weather do tomorrow? To which the chief replied, Dunno, radio broken. (laughs) This story highlights something for us about the nature of predictions. Predictions, even about something as basic as what the weather will be like tomorrow, are extremely difficult to make with any high degree of accuracy. What's the old saying about weather in Manitoba? Does anyone know? Wait 15 minutes and it'll be something else, right? Well, that 15 minutes of cold took a while to get past, but here we are, minus one or probably even zero as we speak. Who would have thought? Zero degrees right now when, what, minus 40-something? Not that long ago, right? But that's the nature of prediction. It can swing so rapidly. It's why weather forecasters always hedge their educated guesses with percentages. So when they say things like, there's a 70% chance of snow tomorrow, they should really be adding in behind that with a 30% chance that I'm dead wrong. Right? That's what they're really saying. Now, personally, the greatest prediction I ever made was way back in 1993 in Game 6 of the World Series, between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Atlanta Braves. Some of you may recall this. It was the bottom of the ninth. The Jays were down 6-5 to with two runners on base when Joe Carter stepped up to the plate. Then, as my family can attest, you can ask them, I said, wouldn't it be great if Joe Carter hit a home run right now? And bang, it happened. Home run, over the fence, the famous radio call. Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. That happened. And I felt like a million bucks. I'd called it. And we were all celebrating, jumping around the kitchen. Now, of course, in telling you that story, I have to throw in the caveat of how many other times I've tried the same thing and been wrong. Yeah, my percentages aren't so great. But this, again, highlights for us something about the nature of predictions and why biblical prophecy, and more specifically, the accuracy of biblical prophecy, is so important to our faith and our understanding of God's plan for the world. Now, chances are, if you've spent any amount of time reading the Bible, you'll have noticed that a good chunk of this book, nearly one-third of it, in fact, is prophetic in nature. And so, with so much of it, filled with very specific predictions of the future. Specific events, names, places, things that will take place. Now, as we've established, making any sort of predictions about the future is always extremely difficult. And no matter how confident one may be that their prediction is accurate, there is always, always, always a degree for error. You may recall that in the last United States presidential election, many pundits had predicted a 95% chance that Donald Trump would lose the election. And how did that one turn out, right? They They were blown away. How could we be so wrong? No matter how certain we are of predictions of the future, there's always a degree of error. And so factoring that in, one would think that if 
the Bible's prophecies, the ones listed in this book, many of them very specific, if they had an 80 to 90% degree of accuracy, by human standards, that would be amazing, incredible. It would be the most accurate predictor of anything in human history if it was only 80 or 90%. Especially when you factor in that, unlike me predicting Joe Carter's home run just moments before it happened, the Bible has already accurately predicted hundreds of events centuries before they occurred. Centuries. And so, of course, you have to know that the further away something is when it's predicted, the more unlikely that it is to happen. And therefore, the more impressive it is when it's correct. You see, if I had predicted that Joe Carter would hit a walk-off World Series winning home run at the beginning of the 1993 season, that would have been far more impressive than me saying it mere seconds before it took place. If I had done that five years before, even more impressive because he wasn't even on the team yet, right? You see how this works. The further back you go, the more impressive a prediction is. So, while by any human standard, having an 80 to 90% success rate would be incredibly impressive. People are impressed that some guy you may have heard of named Nostradamus, you've heard of him, a couple of his prophecies sort of came true, so people are really impressed by them, and yet they don't factor in that a good half of them aren't anywhere close to coming true. So even by human standards, 50% is pretty good. But the Bible is in a different category altogether. The Bible's degree of prophetic accuracy is 100%. Not 98, not 99.2, 100% accurate. And as Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Rhetorical questions. The answers are all in the negative. No, God is not a man. No, God has never spoken and failed to act. No, he has never promised anything and not carried it through. When God speaks, when he says something will come to pass, it will. Psalm 33 verse 4 reaffirms this. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. So now, as incredible as biblical prophecy is, there is, of course, also a tremendous challenge with it. Now, we'll do a quick poll here. By show of hands, who here finds reading biblical prophecy confusing? Yeah? You'll notice my hand is up too, and that's not just to get you to put your hand up. It is confusing. In fact, some of the reasons that pastors often shy away from preaching on prophecy is by the confusing nature of it, and the fact that so many scholars who are all in agreement on the core tenets of the faith can still have very different opinions on exact interpretations. And so, yes, there is a confusing element to prophecy. And the reason that it's so often confusing is because quite often prophecy is dealing with visions that are filled with fantastic imagery and sequences of sometimes numbers and names that need to be interpreted properly in order to be understood. So, just to be clear, while all prophecy has a literal meaning, the imagery used within is quite often symbolic. And so this leaves specific interpretations up for much vigorous debate with 
full library's worth of books, all giving their definitive take on why their interpretation is the right one. And for this reason, as I said, many Christians steer clear of prophecy altogether, thinking it doesn't really concern them. But I want to say to that attitude that there is a reason that God made nearly one-third of the Bible prophetic in nature. And it wasn't just so that we could skip it over. In fact, God gave it to us for some very specific reasons. Let me give them to you in no particular order. Number one, he gave prophecies to us to show us his supreme power over everything. Number two, to show us that his word is completely reliable and true. Number three, to give us a glimpse into his big picture plan for the world. Number four, and this is very important, to warn us to repent of sin and to be right with God, because judgment against sin always comes. Number five, to move us into ever-increasing depths of faith and conviction. And sixth, and finally, to prepare us and to help us to be alert for Jesus' return. All of these things are wrapped up within the study of prophecy. And so as you can see, it's very important. Now, it's confusing. Yes, a lot of it is, but a lot of it's very straightforward. And so I hope to unpack some of the more straightforward approaches to prophecy this morning to give us some understanding on how to handle it. As Jesus instructed his disciples in Mark 13, verse 35, he said this, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So let me ask you, why should every Christian care about prophecy? Why? Well, first off, Jesus commands it. How else are we to keep watch unless it is through the lens of Scripture? You see, it is through understanding prophecy that we can keep watch on what's going on in the world today. So when Jesus says, keep watch for my return, he's not just saying, keep, you know, looking up at the sky all the time. You know, the disciples weren't just walking around looking at the sky just in case he came back. No, he's saying, keep watch. Watch the affairs of the world because I've given you in my word signs that you can watch for. So when he says, keep watch so that you're not caught unawares when he returns... This is what he's talking about. Dig into prophecy, understand it, so that you can watch what is happening. When he returns, don't be asleep, be awake. So this brings us to the most important thing about prophecy. We don't want to miss out on what God is doing. You see, there was another very specific prophetic age that took place 2,000 years ago. It's one that we've just journeyed through in the season of Advent. That prophetic age was when the long-prophesied, long-awaited, long-anticipated Jewish Messiah was born in Bethlehem. But having just come through the Advent season, one of the things that struck me again was that the vast majority of Jews in that prophetic age, especially the most religious ones, they missed it entirely. Even when the religious scribes could accurately tell the searching magi that the newborn king they were looking for, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, having accurately identified his birthplace, they couldn't be bothered to go investigate for themselves. And so they missed it. 
The greatest event of human history was happening right under their noses, and they just weren't paying attention. And just as then, today I believe we are living in a prophetic age where more and more specific things are continuing to come together in preparation for fulfilled prophecies. And Jesus does not want his bride, the church, to be asleep. I know I don't want to miss out on anything that God is doing, and I don't think you do either. So this morning, let me give you a few helpful principles when reading prophecy. Number one, approach with humility. Approach with humility. Whenever scholars claim that their theory of how the last days are going to play out is exactly right... I always take it with a large grain of salt. You've you've got to approach with humility. I I always appreciate the commentators who say things more along the lines of, this is how I think it's going to play out, but I don't know for certain. That's humility. The guys who say, if you want to know the definitive take, read my stuff, eh, we'll take that with a grain of salt. For instance, the Left Behind book series. Have any of you read that? I'm sure some of you have, right? Very insightful, very entertaining, but remember, when you're reading Left Behind, it's not the definitive take on how exactly everything will happen. Only God knows exactly how things are going to happen, and in exactly what order. So, while we may have very strongly held views on the order of how certain events will play out, such as whether the rapture will happen pre-trib or post-trib, whether you're, you're pre-millennial or post-millennial, We need to hold and discuss these viewpoints with humility and with much grace, especially as we discuss them with one another. So approach with humility. Number two, remember that many prophecies, in fact, most prophecies, are multi-layered. Think of prophecy like an onion. How many layers does an onion have? Does anyone know? Has anyone ever counted all the layers of an onion? I know I did it once, and I can't remember the number now because I'm sure it differs between the size of the onion, but they have a lot of layers. You see, most Old Testament prophecies had a specific message for the listeners of the present day. There's very few prophecies that are just obscure only for the future. Most prophecies had a layer for the original audience who was listening to the prophet that day. Then they would have a next layer where they would often have messages or prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. And then they would skip right ahead to specific messages and prophecies concerning Jesus' second coming. And the tricky part is that all three layers are often given within one passage. And so the unaware reader could easily assume that these one, two, or three events are all happening at the same time, or at the very least, very close together. But they're actually, some of them, can be very far apart. This is often referred to as the mountain peaks of prophecy. And I have a slide to help you visualize it here today. The mountain peaks of prophecy. So there are multiple, multiple fulfillments often within one prophecy. So here we see you've got, uh, you've got the prophet. God has given him the word The word to speak, often from a vision or something like that, where the prophet has seen it, he's received the word, now he's going to speak it out. So he speaks it out, and there's the first layer that he speaks about, there's the present age, it's happening now or very soon. Then often there's something about the time of Christ in the middle, and then there's something about the future, often referring to the millennial kingdom, when Jesus will reign in righteousness upon this earth. 
And so the prophet can talk about all these things in one breath, and the hearer would almost automatically assume that, well, Jesus is going to come, and then he's going to reign with righteousness on earth, and everything's going to be perfect. But as we can see now through the rearview mirror of history, the valley between the time of Christ and his return isn't just back to back. There is a gulf of at least two millennia. And so the prophet, looking along the timeline, he sees them as all sandwiched together. From the side, we can see that there's gaps in the prophecies. There's layers. And so of this, Dr. D. Raggins says this. This occurs when a prophet compresses the time interval between two prophetic events. The reason for it has to do with the perspective of the prophet. As he looks into the future and sees a series of prophetic events, they appear to him as if they are an immediate sequence. It's like looking down a mountain range and viewing three separate peaks, one behind the other, each sequentially higher than the one in front. The peaks look like they are right up against each other because the person viewing them cannot see the valleys that separate them. Let me give you just one example of a prophecy that's like this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 and 10. I won't read it verbatim, but in this passage, Zechariah Zechariah 9 Verse 9, it's very famous because it's the one that talks about Jesus entering Jerusalem riding a donkey. And so when they saw Jesus entering Jerusalem riding a donkey, they right away recognized Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here he is, our king, riding a donkey. And so that's the first part of the prophecy. He's going to come in humble on a donkey. Then verse 10 says that the Jewish people are now going to be set aside. And the second part of verse 10, verse 10 says that the Messiah will reign over all the nations. Two verses, and yet three events are in these two verses. There's the first coming, the setting aside of Israel, and the reign of Christ. And they, appear, and they appear all in quick succession. But in reality, there are 40 years between the first two events, and then at least 2,000 years between the second and third events. And so now as we look back on this, we can maybe have a little bit more understanding when Jesus' disciples saw him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. They immediately assumed that the physical establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth was right around the corner. It was about to happen. And that's why James and John are arguing between themselves, Jesus, who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? They were arguing about that because they thought this is about to happen. We are going to see this. Jesus is going to be on the middle throne, but we want to be on either side of him. That's how immediately they were anticipating this to be fulfilled. And so it gives us a little bit more understanding as to how they were looking at prophecy. It looked as though things were happening right together. So remember this. When we look at prophecies, there are often layers of fulfillment, like an onion. All right, we're going to move on to number three now. When looking at prophecy, the plain, straightforward meaning is most often the correct one. The plain, straightforward meaning, the plain sense rule is what it's often called. So for instance, there are specific prophecies, one in particular, that says the city of Damascus will be destroyed. Now, there's another one, a specific prophecy, that says that when Jesus returns, he will return on top of the Mount of Olives. When we read these prophecies, we should take them at face value. 
There's no need to do interpretive gymnastics to try to make them symbolic or metaphorical in some way. When it says this is what's going to happen, we can take it at its word, this is what's going to happen. So the plain sense rule. Fourthly, symbols have definitive meanings. Of course, many symbols are confusing, but it's helpful to remember that behind every symbol is also a plain sense meaning. Even if we don't know what it is yet, or there's some debate over it. For instance, Isaiah said that a root would spring up from the stump of Jesse. Now, the people who heard that in his day, a root shooting up from the stump of Jesse, they're trying to figure out this imagery. What does it mean? It would have been difficult for them to figure out. But now, of course, we clearly understand and we know that Jesus is the root, born from the family tree of David, whose father was Jesse. And so he is the root springing up from it. So we must remember that even if we can read something, there's, there's a symbol that we don't know what the one-to-one is, there is something, and sometimes that will only be revealed with its fulfillment. Fifth, remember that every prophecy, every prophecy, no matter how obscure, even if maybe you've never even read it before, every last one of them will happen. Let's take a more in-depth look at one example of an already fulfilled prophecy. I want you to turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, Jamie read this for us a little bit earlier. We're going to look at verses 24 to 28. Now to give you a little bit of context. The prophet Isaiah is living in the southern kingdom of Judah around the year 700 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been overrun by the Assyrian army in 722 BC as a judgment upon their idolatry and constantly turning away from God. So Isaiah has warned the southern kingdom of Judah they are going to suffer a similar fate if they don't repent of their idolatry and turn to God. But of course, does anyone listen? No. The prophets weren't listened to very often, in fact. If you wanted to have a very frustrating job, become a prophet. Well, in fact, the prophets never chose to become prophets. God appointed them prophets And there was very little argument in the matter. But nonetheless, Isaiah is prophesying. No one's listening. And so finally, through Isaiah, God says this and gives this message to Judah. Let's read the whole passage again. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. He's starting this prophecy out by reminding the people who it is they're dealing with here. I am your creator. I made you, and I made all things. Listen up. Verse 25. Who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. Who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Here he's putting into place all of their false prophets of the day who are all saying, everything's fine, everything's good, keep doing what you're doing, nothing to see here. And God's saying, those guys, I'm going to be showing them up for who they are, liars. They are lying to you. And he's calling them out on it, that he's going to make their false prophecies foolish nonsense. You may look around today and and see some people with a little bit of pie on their faces over predictions being made. Well, there was a lot of pie on faces back then too. 
from false prophets who were saying things that were not according to God's word. And God was going to show them up. Verse 26. Who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. So here's the contrast. There's all those guys saying they're speaking for God, but then God says, no, I'm going to show them up for the liars that they are, the deceivers that they are. But on the other hand, the word of my servants, I am the one who fulfills the predictions of my messengers. You see, it's not the messenger who fulfills the prediction. No, he's just the messenger, right? God is the one who fulfills it. He's the one who proves their words true. Continuing, verse 26, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says of the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now there are two very specific predictions in this passage. Number one, he predicts a future rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And secondly, he predicts that a man named Cyrus was going to be the one to do it. Now what's remarkable about these predictions is that at the time that they were spoken, Jerusalem was not only standing, they hadn't even heard of a guy named Cyrus. And in fact, Jerusalem and the temple were still perfectly fine. Jerusalem was flourishing. The nation, by human standards, had never been doing better. And so here, in this context, looking around, what what are you talking about, Isaiah? Everything's fine. Jerusalem is standing. The temple is standing. What are you talking about a future rebuilding of the temple? We haven't been defeated. In fact, Jerusalem was not destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians until over 100 years after this prophecy was given, in 587 B.C., And then, the second prophecy that a man named King Cyrus of the Persians, who defeated the Babylonians and released the Jews to return to Jerusalem with the mandate to rebuild the temple some 170 years after Isaiah's prophecy. So here we see that over a century before Cyrus was even born, with Jerusalem and the temple still standing, Not only did Isaiah accurately predict that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed and need to be rebuilt, but a man specifically named Cyrus was going to be the one to do it. Now, even if he had taken just a shot-in-the-dark guess and said some future king of some other empire is going to be the one to do it, that would have been pretty specific. But when you name the guy a hundred years before he's born, humanly speaking, this isn't just a shot-in-the-dark This is absolutely, utterly impossible. For comparison, this is about the same as if someone back in 1869 had predicted that in 100 years, man would walk on the moon and that man's name would be Neil Armstrong. What are the chances of someone in 1869 having predicted that? Less than zero. It didn't happen. It's impossible. Because they hadn't even dreamt of flying yet, let alone naming the man who's going to walk on the moon. Yeah, good one. So this is utterly impossible. These odds are out of the world. Pun intended. Now, of course, skeptics couldn't believe that such a specific prophecy could actually come true. 
So they tried saying that no external evidence agreed with what the Bible said about that period of history. But in 1879, archaeologists discovered what became known as the Cyrus Cylinder. And I want to show you a picture of it. Here, this was discovered, this clay cylinder dating from, yes, the 6th century BC, dating exactly correct to that time period. It was discovered in the ruins of Babylon in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And written all over this cylinder is decrees and descriptions of Cyrus the Great of Persia that also includes direct references to him returning exiled people to their homelands in order for them to rebuild their sacred places of worship. So, so much for the theory that nothing corroborates with the scriptures. And we see this again and again and again. Rather than disproving scripture, archaeology continues to prove the accuracy of God's word. The level of detailed accuracy that Isaiah gives proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word is true and reliable. And that just as the one prophecy was perfectly fulfilled, today we can be absolutely certain that every single prophecy that hasn't yet been fulfilled will be in due time. You see, my friends, when God speaks, when God speaks, it's as good as done. Do you believe that today? When God speaks, it's as good as done. Do you believe that today? Is that core to your understanding of who God is and what his word has said? When he speaks, you can take every last word, no matter how insignificant it may seem to us, how obscure in the scriptures, every last word you can take to the bank. And you know what? This applies not only to prophecy. This applies to absolutely every area of your life. Let me ask you, what has God said to you? What has God said to you? What has God said about you? Well, his word has said some things about you. He has said that you are forgiven. Don't doubt it. Receive it today. If he has said that you are loved with an everlasting love, Don't spend the rest of your life wondering how that could be. No, believe it. Live in his love. Receive his love and give it back to him. And if he has said that he has a good plan for your life, believe it, receive it, and follow it. Because remember, all God's words are true. And sometimes we just need to move a little closer to hear him a little bit more clearly. Let's face it, prophecy takes a little bit of digging. It takes a little bit of work. But you know what? The more we put into it, the even more we receive in return. So don't be afraid to dive in. Don't be afraid to move a little closer to God. And don't be surprised when you hear his voice just a little bit more clearly. There's a story of a young man who once lost his job And growing somewhat desperate about his plight, he went to see an old preacher that he knew. And as he poured out his heart to the preacher, he angrily declared, I've just begged and begged God to say something to help me. And yet, I hear nothing but silence. So, preacher, can you help me? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? And the old preacher who was sitting across the room, he spoke a reply so quiet that the young man was unable to make it out. 
And so the young man stepped across the room one step closer. What did you say? The old preacher repeated himself again in an even softer tone. So the young man moved closer until he was leaning right up against the preacher's chair with his ear turned towards his mouth. Sorry, he said, I still didn't hear you. And then with their heads bent down together, the old preacher whispered in his ear, God sometimes whispers, so we will move closer to hear him. God is speaking, my friends. God is speaking. Do you hear him? Sometimes we have to move closer to hear him. Let me encourage you today. Prophecy is one of the many ways that God has spoken to us and is speaking to us. So let's move closer to hear and to understand. Because the sad truth is that, as I said earlier, the prophets were rarely listened to in their day. Even more rare was obedience. The same is true today. So may we seek to be among the few who move closer to God, to hear, to understand, and to obey. Even as we see the time of Jesus' return drawing closer. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that all your words are true. We thank you that they are living and active. We thank you, Lord, that there is no word that has ever dropped from your lips, no matter how irrelevant it might seem to us, how obscure, there's not one of them that will not come to pass. You are not like us, Lord, who say things without meaning them. You're not, you're not someone who, who just says something and then changes their mind, Lord. No, you will do what you have said. And so, Father, today I pray that as we consider prophecy, as we consider diving in a little bit deeper into your word, to understand, by your Holy Spirit, give us insight, give us revelation, give us understanding, so that through it all we might watch a little bit more closely and carefully the signs of what's happening in the world, so that we won't miss what you are doing, and that above all, oh Lord, we won't miss when the trumpet sounds and you return for us, your church. We look forward to that day, Lord, with much anticipation. And bless us, Lord, as we go out into this week, as we walk through our days, help us to be mindful of you in all that we say and do and think. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.